welcome to another episode of Idea Prof with your host, Mike Pedersen. Um, have a really kind of complex topic today that I think will be fun and pertinent to uh, what's going on. But before I get to that, I want to introduce my guest and co-creator for the show. His name's Matt. I met him uh, over LinkedIn, just randomly met from two guys on the internet, had some really great conversation previously about uh, some career path and decided to invite him and was lucky enough that he would want to join the show. So Matt, how's it going? Introduce yourself and let everybody know who you are. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Matt. I'm a, by day, I'm a designer. Um, and by day, I also am an advocate for empathy. I would say probably where I continue that outside of work is that I'm also a strong advocate for social justice uh, pretty much in every part of my day-to-day -day life. Uh, I try to bring a curiosity to everything I do. I really do try to approach just about every part of my life with this idea that I know incredibly little and I'm always trying to learn as much as possible. Um, my background, I actually have a background in cultural history. I did a master's then in knowledge management and information management in uh, Toronto. Um, uh, in the past, I've worked as an English teacher in Japan. That was a hugely profound experience, I think, from someone coming right out of undergrad, uh, who probably at the time did think that he knew how the world worked. So that probably was one of the most profound moments, I think, in my life to say, you should stop, you should be more observant, you should be more critical of things. Um, after that, I've worked in the advertising world, I've worked in the uh, financial tech space. Uh, yeah, that's, that's about it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you hit on one of those points. I, I wish people would be a little bit more, what's the word, um, realize that they might not know everything. It kind of go a long way. Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, I think I went into, like, I I have very vivid memories of getting out of university and going into a space like Japan and thinking, you know, I know how things are. I understand the world. I'm 24. I figured things out. And I'm very quickly realizing I know nothing. I'm... I, if I, th if I go into any more situations thinking that I actually know things, I'm going to get myself in trouble. And perhaps I'll get a lot farther along if I try to show... Uh, I think the respect of not assuming that I know everything, and since then I've always found that that's actually been a pretty good way to enter into just about any situation. So as far as the situation, things get a little, can be stressful, right? So I think uh, we had talked about this a little bit before, but um, regarding that stress, I think you have like a unique way for your segment about how to, um, I don't say alleviate that, but so can you elaborate? Like, what's what's the passion? What's the what's the way that you kind of deal with these things? Um. So I learned uh, actually a lot of this credit I have to give to my partner. Uh, my partner is an artist, and I I think I learned through her that when you work in a role that is you know maybe a little bit more cerebral it's a lot more of critical thinking on a day-to-day -day basis that's not enough to give you a good balance so what i what i started realizing through her was that she would you know do this very cerebral work during the day and then in the evenings would focus on her craft she's a sculptor so i realized that what i 
you know, the moments that I was finding enjoyment, kind of like a well-rounded day, were the days then that I was in the kitchen where I was cooking or doing something with my hands. Uh, similarly, woodworking and metalworking were two things that I grew up around. My father uh, was an amateur carpenter. Uh, that was his projects and it was something that I started kind of taking that mantle as well. So uh, especially when COVID hit and we found ourselves working from home all of a sudden to make sure that I was giving myself an opportunity to not just focus on only one part of maybe that left brain type of work that I tried to give myself this opportunity to say, okay, let's take a break. Let's go into the kitchen. Let's try making something from scratch. Like you've never made puff pastry. Let's make a meal foie. Let's get some butter and get some flour and let's spend the next eight hours on a Saturday learning to make puff pastry. Or let's take this uh, cutting board that I had that was starting to fall apart and let's strip it down and put it all back together because we have a uh, stack of sandpaper, some elbow grease and a ton of time. And I'm glad that I had those. I mean, very lucky to have the space to be able to do that. Um, it definitely, I think for me was a, a good stress reliever, a good chance for me to find uh, like a nice balance throughout my days when we were in this incredibly chaotic time. Yeah. Um, so from a, from a creative lens, for those that maybe potentially want to emulate, how have you found it best for you? Do you go in with a little bit of a mindset to say, hey, I'm going to create this? Or do you just kind of let the projects come to you? Is it more of a you know, free-flowing type thing? Or is it more just, hey, whatever's going to balance me out, I guess you could say? That's interesting. Actually, I could say it can, it can kind of actually go both ways depending on what area it would be. So uh, when it comes to cooking, uh, I have you know, I've been doing it now for a fairly long time. It's something that I actually have a background in. I worked in a lot of restaurants when I was, uh, you know, pursuing my education. So cooking is one of these things where I think I can usually identify the areas that I would like to get more experience in. Uh, baking, obviously, I think I was one of those people that immediately kind of fell into like, I'm gonna learn to make sourdough bread, like the old, the, the proper way. And uh, I think I'd be suffered for woodworking uh, and metalworking. Um, I do a lot of uh, work on restoring knives, restoring old furniture, and again, that's something that I've been doing for a while now, so COVID gave me actually a lot of opportunities to really just spend more time on that craft that I may not have been spending enough time on in the, the months or years leading up to it. Um, but where I would say it's actually the opposite is actually, uh, I'm very interested in wood carving. I've been wanting to get into wood carving for a while or soapstone carving. And I know we actually had a conversation about this the last time we spoke. And I would, if you right now gave me the tools and a block of wood or a block of soapstone, I have no idea what I'm going to give you at the end of it. I probably am just going to give you a bunch of uh, dust. So I don't know, like, uh, I guess maybe from your perspective then, how, how do you see that? Because as you mentioned uh, in our last conversation, you actually do a lot of wood carving and substone carving. Yeah, so um, it, it's interesting because I have, I have this one project that I have right now in which literally, I, I, to give you a little bit of history, um, to those out there, I think I've said it in, in another episode, uh, in kindergarten, I absolutely loathed coloring. 
the concept of coloring just did not resonate with me whatsoever. Kindergarten teachers couldn't get me to do it. My sister, my parents, like, I just didn't find value. So fast forward to my high school years, had to do an art class to graduate. And same thing happened. I was just like, can I, can I do anything else rather than paint? And my teacher said, well, you can carve some soap. And I was like, deal, give it to me. And from then on, I've, I've had the ability to just kind of work with it. And so now when I do it, which I try and get to it at least, you know, once a week or something like that, um, I finally just kind of let it come to me naturally. So I, to, for all the listeners out there, imagine you take just a regular soap of Irish Spring. I use Dove because Dove's a little bit softer and a little bit easier to, to work with. And you can get tools for $8.99 off of Amazon. And literally, I just go in, set it on top of a table, put on some music that has no lyrics, that's kind of calm and relaxing, and just carve whatever I, I want to carve. And typically, I don't finish in that one time frame. Um, I put it away, and then when I come back to it the next time, my mindset is different, uh, my thought processes are different. Uh, but I found that I often don't see the same block of carved silk the same. So one time it started out as a little figurine of a man and then it turned into a boat. Like, and so it's just, it's whatever happens at the end. And I never really decide when I'm done. Usually by that time, the piece of soap is so small that I just kept whittling and then I start over. So uh, right now, the, the latest one that I have is it looks like there's a little river going through with a bridge over the top and I have a couple of trees and that's uh, that's about it. Um, by no means are these Etsy worthy, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do my best and it, you know, it's a great way to just kind of take the edge off, I guess you could say. That's interesting. I think where it's different for what I do, at least for the metal work and woodwork, is that I'm, I think maybe I'm giving myself like an easy out because I have something that's already there. So I, you can't see it right now, but the table that I'm working at right now, a friend gave it to me. It was an old Ikea table of his that I'm pretty sure he just used as a cutting board. And I stripped it down. I applied, you know, like use it as a good opportunity to actually learn uh, techniques for lacquering and I have this table that actually kind of looks like an antique pond table as a result um, but it was a table to start with and I feel like it was going to stay as a table uh, and similarly when it comes to restoring knives um, part of the reason that I like to do this restoration is that um, someone took a long time to make these things especially if it's a knife that you can tell was done by hand uh, i really like a lot of japanese knives and ones that have been signed by the person who's done it to me these are you know like the the greatest respect you can show to that person and to this tool is to give it as long a life as possible so i actually have a it's not a japanese knife it's a carving knife uh it was originally a french chef's knife and you can tell you can see the stamp on it but just I bought it at a flea market and it was just people who had through you know generations of sharpening it had just completely lost its uh shape and i was like well i want to give this knife like one last chance like 
give it give it its last hurrah. So I reshaped it and it's perfect now as a filleting knife. So I use it whenever I'm cooking fish, which is fairly often. And I think for me, that's the one thing though that I would say is maybe the limitation is that you can only really go so far with it. You're not going to take a, you know, a knife that you find at the flea market and be like, I'm gonna turn this into anything that's not somehow related to being a knife because, you know. That's its purpose. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that I appreciate that, but I also am consistently of people like you, like you said, like, that you can take something raw and turn it into something. That's something that my partner does as well as a sculptor. And I do, like, I, I am continuously impressed with people who can take that abstract piece and turn it into something that can be realized conceptually because I don't think I have, like, I, I think that is somewhere that my brain hits a limitation of if you gave me a plug of soap and said, here, like, that's going to be probably the biggest challenge for me carving is to actually be able to have my brain say, what if we were to turn it into this and not, like I said, just make a big pile of carved soap or wood. It's funny that, that you, you know, you talk about the big pile of soap and wood and, you know, being abstract, um, which is one of the things that we really will have to really think broadly about the topic that we have today. So for the listeners, um, we want to bring in the topic for today, which was, is there a way to build a political system that is free from corruption I guess amongst those that are inside the system, right? So initially, my first thought regarding this is there must be a way because I feel like there's other countries that are farther getting to that point. Um, now, of course, I don't live, um, I'm in the United States uh, and I don't live in one of those countries that one, you know, maybe I just don't hear about it, right? So the countries that I'm thinking about are some of those, like for example, Scandinavian countries who have a little bit, uh, have a better, I guess, cost of living and people seem to be happier. They constantly end up in those uh, high in the happiness ratings of people that live there. Um, so you have to think that obviously those, those countries are doing something right. They're doing something correctly. Um, here in the United States, of course, you know, you have a, to put it lightly, a hostile climate at the moment. Um, and then you have political unrest on one side. And of course, we have an election coming up in November. Um, and so the thought process is, you know, the first one for me is, I feel like you have to take the money out of things, right? The ability to remove that could weigh significantly on those members of the government that are able to make the decisions, pass the laws, make legislature. If they're blinded by the almighty dollar, that can really distort their perception of how to go about governing in the proper manner. Is that a fair place to start? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's an incredibly salient point when it comes to corruption. I mean, corruption to most people would be defined, I think, as using, uh, using some privilege or some opportunity that not everyone has as a means to an end to enrich yourself or to enrich your like whatever group or a clique or area that you belong to um 
It's interesting. So, uh, probably if people haven't already picked this up, uh, I am in Canada. I'm Canadian. Uh, we actually have a uh, corruption scandal currently ongoing with our uh, ruling party uh, involving a charity group that received a government. Um, I, I can't think of the word right now. Like, uh, basically, the government uh, hired them to run a program relating to COVID. And there was no bidding process. It just went, if I recall, to this organization. And since then, there's been some investigation. Uh, so far, where it stands is uh, the finance minister stepped down uh, after it was revealed that his family had received trips that they had not paid back from this charity um, until the, the way they paid it back was they paid it back the day, I believe, before he testified in front of a committee on this. So he stepped down and then our prime minister prorogued parliament, which is a fancy Commonwealth way of saying, we're just gonna shut down the government and we'll come back at a predetermined date. Uh, so our government is not happening right now until September, whenever, I can't, I, I don't even know what date it starts. This is, um, this is kind of the, you know, seems like it's almost par for the course. The, I can't remember the exact quote, but I've heard some quotes in the past about Canadian political corruptions almost always someone have, getting caught with their hand in the piggy bank. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, because I think I would even suggest that perhaps it's beyond just money. So I would pose a question back to you then of when I say enrichment, does it have to be financial enrichment? Could it be any other form? Uh, so what I always think about when it comes to what we see, for example, in the US, and, and it happens around the world, I don't want to make it seem like it's only in one country, but it's this very human quality of creating the other, that we're always creating a group, uh, a person, a class, a category of something that we are not. We in Canada, uh, it's almost like a national pastime to compare ourselves to America. and. It's something that I know, like, I know a lot of people who love to do that. And it's actually, for me, uh, a very, uh, I, very sore point for me, actually, because I think that a lot of Canadians, on a personal level, as a, as a quick segue, uh, or aside, I actually think that a lot of Canadians excuse things that are uh, very bad parts of Canadian history because we'll compare ourselves to another country and say, well, we're not as bad as that. Uh, yeah, I think you... You drilled it because I feel that, that that often happens a lot of places. I hear that oftentimes here in the U.S. People will say, you know, well, it, it can't be as bad, you know, and, and almost I have to say it's almost on the other side as well. So you have people that are on the extreme opposites. So some will say, well, it's not as bad as in, you know, uh, you know, countries in Africa or something like that or or Venezuela where it's corruption and all this kind of stuff and people you can buy off the police and all this like it's not as bad as there um, and then you have the exact opposite in which some people are so blinded and say well the United States is the best country in the world and we can never do any wrong and everybody should look up to us because we're great at everything um, I feel like there's got to be a healthy balance in the middle there. Um, and, and to your point about the financial aspect of it, I, I have to feel like that's not 
I feel like that's the most prevalent. That's the ones that we hear about um, because most people are concerned about the money. They are concerned about the finances, the economy, how things are going because that directly impacts them. But I think there's some other aspects that people aren't, um, maybe aren't as frequently aware of. So those might be um, the manipulation of the laws, right? Um, setting things up into their favor or their friend's favor or their family's favor for whether they're, while they're in power or maybe they could be out of power or recently out of power. I also feel there's a huge aspect of it um, that's nepotistic in which they will, you know, people in power will heavily put people that friends, family that will in certain positions that will benefit them because everybody is for the same thing. They will not open it up. It will not be open to the best particular candidate for the job or the best particular role. Um, it'll just be kind of gifted. And there's some in politics that will say, well, when you're in power, like that's the privilege that you get. And so I think what we're trying to talk about here is like, how do we remove that? How do we disconnect that? And you know, in addition to the to the financial piece, I, I feel like is there a way to disconnect? You know, speaking to to the nepotism part, way to disconnect that to where maybe people in positions have to be ratified, have to be voted on by some type of committee or or team or or chair or maybe even the people can it can it get to that level i mean is that possible like i'm thinking you know one of the thoughts that came to my head is maybe like an election after the election right so you have maybe a president or a prime minister whoever comes in who might be the top of of the chain there but then they propose the next 30 people of the cabinet to the people to say hey i want these people to hold these positions here are their credentials you have to vote on them as well yeah, I think this is something that I've actually, uh, I was reading about recently because it's not something that happens in Canada, but you mentioned having more positions that are voted on, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the United States, people vote for judges, you vote for sheriffs, so there's a lot of uh, public positions that are voted on, would that be correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct, and I think... One of the, just a short tip to get before we get back to is that I do feel people probably miss out on that and probably should partake in that more um, because I don't think they realize how much of an impact that, that has on things. But go ahead, continue. So the reason why that kind of comes to mind when you mentioned that was my understanding is one problem that's been cited in the past with when you have, say, a judge who has to be elected is that a judge can make a case for elect me because I throw more people in prison and that can fall into you know the the prison system in the United States is often cited as an example of a corrupt system because it's a series of businesses and government officials that are almost kind of this cyclical pattern of uh, money goes into the prison system which then feeds these businesses which then puts more money into the system which feed, and as long as there's a steady stream of people being introduced into the prison system um that they that, that the system can continue to sustain itself and that's where it can be a problem potentially with that because you get someone who may be positioning it to the public as i am doing a good by throwing more people in prison or by sentencing more people to long prison terms. 
But what's actually happening is that they are enriching themselves potentially. They're maybe enriching others and not actually doing that critical, you know, maybe not doing the best job. And if they position it to the public in a way that kind of speaks to the public's, um, speaks to what they believe is the most important or most valuable piece that they could be potentially, I guess, maybe cajoled into believing that, oh, they, they are doing a good. Yeah, I, th I think you hit it right on because I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of times where people position the argument. They position it as a as an either or. They position it as a hey, I'm putting hundreds of people in prison versus the next candidate or, or person is letting everybody run the streets and you know there's drugs everywhere, guns everywhere, and tyranny, and you know, all your shops gonna get broken into, and they, and they throw it as this this massive. Um, uprising when it necessarily you know needs to be i think another component is i'm not sure how how to position it to where those people that they are catering that message to can appropriately get the information to make an informed decision um and that brings another aspect of it into is, you know, of course the media and you have right-wing media and you have left-wing media and how do you, you know, create a, a forum to where that is something that both sides of that party line can feel comfortable believing is real. Um, and part of that is just human intuition and human judgment. And I don't know if it's assuming that everybody can agree right people are going to have their views and uh, on both sides um, but one common source of truth that can be a common source of truth so that's interesting you actually i think you hit off two things that i have considered in the past as maybe being important or critical to a healthy political uh, structure healthy discourse the first one you mentioned was this engagement. So you said you wish more people were engaged. And it's interesting, you mentioned, you know, I think Scandinavia is often cited by a lot of people as an example of where, uh, you know, a democratic or kind of like some form of democracy is working. And I think that that's absolutely, it seems to be absolutely true. Like you said, there's a high value that people put on like their happiness and their quality of life. But the one that I think is actually often overlooked is interestingly is, is Australia, where voting is mandatory, it's a holiday, and it's treated as such. So uh, I have friends who have told me their experience voting when they were growing up in Australia was, uh, you know, it's barbecues. So you go to the voting booth, you put your vote in, and then you just hang out with people. And it's seen as it's not an obligation. And I wonder if part of this is that we need to talk less about politics as a duty and more as this is something that you should relish. You should be quite happy about the fact that you have a chance in shaping what tomorrow is going to look like and, you know, like down the road. Because I think that that then opens up the second part of what I think is sometimes also missing. And again, this is something that multiple countries, you know, like any, like I, you could list off, uh, a never-ending list of governments and countries that fall prey to this but um i think of like right now what's what we hear in the us of you know 
uh, Trump talking about draining the swamp would be a good example, I think. Uh, he's pointing out a problem. There is corruption. Um, there's cronyism. There's nepotism. There's these problems in, in uh, Washington. I'm going to drain the swamp. But then there's never a here's how I'm going to do it. And I think that this... I think that this belies a much bigger problem, which is that politics is super complex. Politics requires a lot of engagement. It requires listening to things that someone's going to say that you're not going to agree with. It requires you to sometimes lose the argument. Um, you know, something that I, when I was new to, you know, my career, something that I had to learn and something that I would pass on to anyone when they were new, if they were like, you know, what's, you know, like what's something that's a really good rule to follow is ask yourself whenever you're in a situation uh, that you're disagreeing with someone, ask yourself, is this the hill that I'm willing to die on? Am I going to be the per like, is this worth my time? Is it worth my effort? And also consider that if you have to do that every time, if you say yes every time, you're going to be insufferable. People are not going to want to work with you. So how can you be collaborative? How can you try to find that balance? And I think that if we had more people who saw this as not, I am obligated to do politics and I hate that I'm obligated. If we had more people who saw it as this is, this is an opportunity that I should really relish that I get this. And we also had people who were willing to concede that we have to go kind of head first into this complexity that maybe we would find maybe we would be able to fill in two of those problems because i think what happens is when you take away that complexity if you let someone take that away from you that's one of the easiest ways for them to re kind of shift that paradigm in a way that it now benefits them or benefits their team and then the other one is if you see it as a chore or an obligation, again, it's so much easier to say when someone comes along and says, yeah, things are bad and I'll solve everything for it and don't worry about it. Just let me like, let me do it and come back later and things will be great. They're not going to be great. They 100% of the time are going to not be great. And that's on us. That's that we we have let ourselves down in that situation. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point to to touch on in the fact that we have to almost be responsible for our own destiny in that regard. In the fact that if you're going to, it's I guess one of I guess you could say your, your duty, um, but even if it's your not obligation, even if it's not the number one thing that you that you absolutely care about and or and or want to be a part of, it's something that I think that. You have to make it a little bit of your life, a little bit to, you owe it to yourself and to your friends and your family to do your part to make your voice heard, regardless of, of how it is. Um, I don't think, I think a lot of people may be either single issue or when, when it comes to voting and so they, they become blinded. And, and to your point, when you talk about, you know, you have people that come along and say, hey, I wanna solve it all. Um, you know, look to me and I'll, I'll kind of be your, your guiding light, like your savior, you know, have to ask yourself, so I said, why do you, for those people that, that partake in that kind of mindset and that thinking, why is it that you do it with something like this, but everything in related into your life, you take the bull by the horns and you do it. When something happens to your, your family, your house, your job, whatever, like you're responsible. 
So why don't you feel any type of responsibility when it's the country that you live in? You know, and so I, I, I don't I don't know where that that disconnect is. Um, so is, is it is it just a matter of educating people or changing minds? I think it's changing minds, and I think therein lies the challenge because changing minds is hard. It's because and it's not just changing the minds of everyone else; it's changing our own minds. And this is what I. Uh, you know, me and when I talk about this idea of like, we have to embrace the complexity. One of the things that we all need to really start practicing when it comes to politics, I think, is a degree of real open-mindedness, practice as much empathy as possible. I think that we see um, too often this uh, instead of trying to practice empathy, we try to instead practice sympathy. So when something happens that doesn't relate to us, it's very easy for us to say, well, that doesn't speak to me. Um, I think of what we see happening right now in, and it's not just in the United States, there's been protests in Canada, uh, part of, you know, like whether it's Black Lives Matter or, or Idle No More, which kind of started a few years ago in Canada as part of kind of a similar movement for the indigenous population in Canada, um, that there are times when the response to that has been from kind of the mainstream media or the, the public has been, well, I don't understand why, for example, with Idle No More, you may hear someone who responds to it to say, well, I don't understand why they want to live on these, you know, like live outside of uh, our cities anyway. Well, I think you need to take a lot of the complexity in. There's a lot of things that have happened from when the first people showed up in Canada to them being put into a position where they may have had no option. They may have been forced into making a decision. And also, I think it's a very dangerous assumption to assume that someone who, you know, might have, you know, that might be where they want to be, you know, whether it's in Northern Ontario. Not everyone wants to live in a big city. So instead of trying to make that assumption that, you know, I as a person who's living currently in Toronto, who loves being part of this metropolitan area, assumes that everyone else wants the same thing. Um, so I think that's the first one. But then the other one that we see is that, again, it's too easy for us instead of falling into the um, being willing to have these conversations. I think it's very easy for us to excuse away uh, some of those bad habits that we've developed. Um, there was a protest in Montreal over the weekend where a statue of John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada, was uh, torn down. And this has been in the news pretty, uh, it's been covered pretty strongly here because again, it's the first Prime Minister of Canada, the statue was torn down. But if I think you, you know, I, I think one of the problems is that no one I keep, or one thing that I don't hear from a lot of people is this willingness to look at it from that perspective of empathy that yes, Johnny McDonald was the first prime minister of Canada, but Johnny McDonald, Johnny McDonald was also the uh, architect of the residential school system, which forced a lot of indigenous children into schools where they weren't allowed to speak their language where they were forced to live a life, uh, follow a religion that wasn't necessarily the religion that they wanted to follow, where uh, abuse was rampant, um, 
it's a very dark part of Canadian history. So why are we so upset sometimes that people might look at someone like that and say, you know, I don't see him in the same rose-colored, you know, through the same rose-colored lens that someone else might. That doesn't mean that he isn't suddenly the first Prime Minister of Canada anymore. We have to be willing to accept that there is that complexity, I think, that people can do something very good and also have done something very bad. And maybe part of what we need to do is stop looking at people as a representation of what we aspire to be and more as, you know, a series of actions that we can then start to ascribe. You know, this was a good decision. This was not a good decision. Yeah, and kind of almost like line it up um, to where it's not, you know, like these people often didn't put themselves in those situations. Like it came to them that was, that was, those were, to, for lack of a better term, those were the cards that they were dealt, you know, at that particular point in time. Um, I'm thinking about other things in that, in that same region, right? So oftentimes we hear about uh, wildfires in Canada. We hear about, you know, tornadoes in Tornado Alley, natural disasters, those type of things, hurricanes down here in Florida. Um, I hear about sometimes people will have a, a negative or a cynical view of it and they will say, well, if you don't like those things happening to your house, why don't you move? You know, and so it's, there's, there's a level of that that it says, okay, fine, if you have the ability to, sure. But there's also a large portion of people who weren't affected by that, but may have been affected by other historical events that gave them the cards that, that they have now. So things like redlining when it comes to housing districts, you know, and not giving the opportunity to, to the school system, you know, segregation, those type of things back in the civil rights movement. So weren't no you know, availability to education, which means that you probably won't get as much education as the next person in the next city. And of course, over generations, that's going to expand on a much wider level. You think of people, you know, potentially owning land and that type of thing that would give them rights and, and better uh, a better situation. So. You know, over a hundred years ago, you're still talking about Trail of Tears for Native Americans and stuff like that in the United States. Like they uprooted thousands of them, rolled them across the country and took their land. I could see how people might have a, be disadvantaged at that time when previously they had much more space to roam and kind of create their own freedom. Um, I wanna I want to make sure to, to touch on another topic that you, that you talked about in, regard, in regards to the sympathy portion of it, because I think that, I think you hit it right on in the fact that people get that misconstrued quite a bit. And whenever they see a problem, they want people to feel sorry for them. And I don't think that people that are affected by this want to want your sympathy, they want your empathy. And we need to make sure that that is clear, that they're not saying, hey, I'm looking for a handout. Hey, give me money. Hey, give me reparations, whatever the case is. They just want to, have an equal playing field so that way we can they can all press forth together right and to kind of have the system be a little maybe balanced for once be equal um and then to touch on another one is is that that concept of you don't always have to be you don't always have to be right you don't always have to win every argument and you talked about you know take the dying on that hill um was a huge uh uh, like kind of eye-opening thought process for, not necessarily for me, because I feel like I, I do that quite a bit. Um, 
but for some of the listeners out there to realize that just because you might not quote unquote win an argument or just because somebody proved a valid point doesn't mean that your voice, your thoughts are insignificant or lesser than. They're just different. They're just different. Um, and so if you take your ego out of it and just look at the facts on the table and then chop them up one by one, I think it can really build a pipeline as to how people can interact better, which would then remove part of the corruption that we could be potentially looking at. Yeah, and I think one of the benefits as well with empathy is it allows us to move past our own barriers, our own boundaries. So, you know, you talk about like trying to look at it, you know, take that other person's perspective. Um, some of those things that you spoke about there as as a white, able-bodied, hetero, cis male, I have to remind myself that those experiences that many other people have had are not going to be the shared experience that I have. And that doesn't mean that my experience hasn't happened, but it also doesn't mean that they, that their experience should have, like, can be construed as being remotely similar. I can't, you know, um, if someone's talking to me about the experiences, you know, like, you know, homophobia they've experienced or Islamophobia, I can't say to them, I would have simply just asked that person not to bully me because that's not how things work. And we have to be willing to accept that there are kind of these rules that sometimes will make things, you know, like that, that govern how people interact with each other, that there are certain, uh, I guess, aspects to this current paradigm that we're in that that's when we talk about privilege. And I think sometimes people who have privilege don't like to acknowledge it because the fear is, I think the fear comes down to, if I acknowledge that privilege, it means that I'm taking advantage of it. And that's not what privilege necessarily has to be. Privilege doesn't have to be active. In fact, it can very easily be a passive thing. It's acknowledging that privilege and then saying, okay, now how can I use that privilege to support others? How can I try to make sure that I'm not the only one taking that? And uh, you made a really interesting example, and this is one that actually I kind of find really frustrates me, which is when a group that I do typically identify with revels in the misery of another group. And the example I think of, you, you mentioned that example of like, well, like I simply wouldn't live in a place with hurricanes. Yeah, easier said than done. But the other one that I see is like, uh, it would be in like in places like social media where uh, Trump, you know, like an area where a lot of Trump supporters uh, congregated or a state that voted for Trump has something bad happen. And the response from people then is kind of to revel being like, well, you voted for him. You're the people who like him as if they somehow deserve that hardship that's befallen them. I, like, yeah, I, I'm I, stunned. <laughs> it's, it's always funny because people are like, oh, well, that's your president. And it's like, and yet uh, I could see how it could feel good to say that if you weren't part of that group that was affected. But that doesn't, it doesn't improve the situation. It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't empathize with those people as to how they can change the dynamics to potentially kind of 
come out of that um, that arrangement and come out better on the other side. It's weird. I, I, as an idiot, kicking a person while they're down is not ever seen as a good thing. No one is ever like, aha, way to kick them when they're down and that wasn't being sarcastic. There's the reason we see that as a bad thing. And I think that too often it's very easy for those of us who sometimes may feel like we are on the wrong side of policy or we are on the wrong side of the government. The government that currently represents us is not the government we want that it can be easy for us sometimes to revel when things are not going well for the people who may have supported that government. And I mean, again, I will preface this with, I think that there's a, like, I think there has to be some complexity to this as well. I think that some of that frustration is probably being experienced by people who don't necessarily have the same experiences that I do. So I'm not trying to say that every person who revels in it is wrong. I guess what I'm trying to suggest is maybe in some cases we could be a little bit more critical and in some cases it's too easy in some spaces to pile on. I think social media is a very easy place for us to do these kind of like, we see something, we get frustrated, we say something really harsh and then we log off and we're not adding to the discourse when we do that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because if you, if you get sucked into the social media wormhole, it's like you said, it's very easy to get caught up in the bashing of either side. It's very easy to, you know, partake in that. But when I've gone through it myself, you know, and sometimes just you know reading through the comments or the replies, and I, I, I oftentimes don't see people adding to the conversation. Don't see people trying to find solutions to the conversation. Um, trying to bridge the gap. I think it's so. It's easier, of course, to jump on the bandwagon and just start blaming and pointing fingers and all that kind of stuff. I think there's an innate sense that it sometimes makes people feel good. Um, but to switch that, to switch that kind of topic into the positivity to, to solve these things in a solution um, kind of focused lens is kind of, I guess, you know, why we're here um, kind of talking about it. But in relation to that, I kind of wanted to to pivot to see how is it that we can better put the people in the positions to make the decisions consistently, right? So one of the things that I want to bring up that you know I ran across the other day was the ability, of, especially in the United States, we have you know two political parties, um, so two heavy ones, I guess you could say. There's also an independent one, but my knowledge, and I could be very ignorant about this, uh, I think there was maybe only maybe one president that actually got through, and that was, you know, hundreds of years ago, as far as an independent president. Um, but I think it's in Germany, in which they have four or five political parties, or something like that. So, um, and the article kind of went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the ability, the fact that they have four or five opens the playing field and makes that particular administration accountable for the decisions that they make. Because if you only have two, you really, you never have to be accountable. The only thing you have to do is slander, sling mud, or bamboozle enough people on one side to get enough votes, then you're in. You can do whatever you want to. Um, versus 
if you have four or five parties, you actually have to be accountable so that way when it comes to time to vote again, people have to say, hey, what, what have you done when you were in, in you know, in, when you were governing? Was it good? Did you follow up on the things that you say that you're going to do? Is the country in better standing? How is the economy? How are the people? Et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't follow up on those things, the probability that you're going to get, you know, reelected is going to be slim. There's three other parties out there and people are going to say, all right, well, we're going to give you some time um, because obviously you didn't know what you're doing or whatever the case may be. We're not in a better place. Uh, so we're going to go with these other three. Yeah, I think, I, I wonder, I feel like the, from what you described, Canada is actually somewhere in the middle of that where we have a conservative party, we have a liberal party. We do, we have a uh, new democratic party, the NDP. They are a our left-wing party. The liberals are kind of our center left, I guess. Conservatives are our right-wing party. And then we have the Bloc Québécois, which is a party that only runs candidates in Quebec. They are the... Uh, kind of party for the francophone nation or the francophone people in Canada. Uh, at times they've been a separatist party. Um, it's, I think it's hard because that example, I think kind of speaks more to kind of the complexity of Canada. Uh, sometimes the divisiveness between East and West. Um, though I do think one of the things that has always impressed me with Germany is also that I believe they've mostly had under at least Angela Merkel, have had coalition governments. So also one of the one of the results of having that uh, that many parties is that it's a lot. It seems like it might be easier to have uh, a government where you get parts of each voice able to speak. Um, I know for but from my perspective, what's actually worked well in Canada in the past is. We, when we, whenever we've had a minority government, which is basically a government that doesn't have enough uh, seats to necessarily pass their legislation. So what it means is that when they do pass legislation, it has to be something they can bring another party in on. So it requires negotiation. It requires them to not simply kind of run amok with whatever it is that they want. And that could be on either side of that spectrum. Um, it instead forces, I think maybe a little bit more kind of like control so what you don't necessarily have is in theory one type of government they bring in policy wildly swings to another type of government they bring in policy that simply is designed to negate the previous government's policy i say this and i immediately remember though in the city of toronto the fact that it took us multiple governments over a decade to finally decide what we were going to do next for our rapidly dwindling and kind of crumbling uh, transit system though so it doesn't always i mean like maybe minority governments are good maybe that is the problem maybe it's that we need to have some sort of check and balance in place to ideally prevent us from just creating a system where we're going from one extreme to another um you made an interesting point earlier and i wonder if there's a way to allow for it to be mitigated which is you talked about this idea of like, we need to have maybe voting for more positions, but I wonder if there also needs to be, maybe instead of like a midterm vote on a person, which could just be a shorter term then, what if there's an opportunity for people to present some sort of like 
Not a report card, because again, I don't think we can boil these things down. I don't think we can try to simplify this stuff, but some form of giving people the chance to actually speak out to their officials. And I do think the part of that is that in theory, we have that ability, but I don't know how easy it is. Like, is it, is there a way that we can improve that ability to speak to our politicians in a way that allows them to hear what we're saying? Um, because sometimes I do wonder also, are they even aware of the opinions when we have an election and like less than 70% of the people vote? To me, I, I would look at that and wonder, does that isn't like, could that be construed as people just don't like the options that are presented? If you can't get a high number to come out, should that be maybe an alert to we, we need to start actually listening to people, speaking to them? Yeah, I think that's a that's a um, listen to people is really important. It, it, it feels like right now, um, the way things are are getting attention, um, at least here in the U.S., it seems like every other day I'm hearing about a new petition. Um, people signing 75,000 signatures to do this, 100,000 signatures to do that. And while I understand that that is the voice of the people and that is you know our right to be able to do that, I feel like it's a very antiquated system. Um, now, of course, there's a, there's a different conversation about potentially finding a way to make that digital. And I think that's a, that's a different way because you're talking about digital voting, digital legislature, all that kind of stuff, which could speed up the process, but um, won't necessarily get into that. It is I feel like there's got to be a little bit of a better way to communicate the needs of the people. Um, and, and you brought up a good point. If, if only 70 people or 70% of the people are turning out, like what are those other 30% doing? Are they just don't care about it? Are they not informed to make a good decision? Um, and so having that, you know, that uh, clear communication about what it is that the legislation is trying to do, how it's supposed to affect people, um, what's going to happen, um, key metrics on the way to success to make that happen so that way everybody's clear on what happens is I think a part that is heavily lacking within the system. So that's that accountability piece, right? Um, I guess physical accountability in the fact of if you have a piece of legislation that's, that's coming through this is what this is this is its intent. This is its impact. How we are going to measure success when we do this and when we implement it, will it be successful? Because I think if that's stated up front to the people and they can see that, then they can say, okay, I'm going to vote, right? Or everybody votes on whatever. Let's review it in two years time. And these were the items that you said you're going to do. And then we look at what's actually done, you know, because Everybody likes to say, hey, you know, what did you actually do? Okay, you look at the back end, but if you don't prepare the front end, there's nothing to compare it to, to balance in the middle, you know? Um, and so another one that, that you know, kind of was churning in my head while we were talking is the idea of here in the United States, I've seen a couple of ballots, is legislation will end up being coupled in some weird ways to end up getting things passed. So they'll talk about something in regards to wildlife preserve, but with that, they'll talk about something, you know, adding restrooms to public parks or something. And coupling it that way, 
it makes it challenging for people to understand. It makes it difficult for those. Um, and I think it also misconstrues the point because there's some times in which people say, well, I want this one. Yeah, I want to preserve the environment, let's just say for example's sake. But at the same time, I don't want to raise my taxes. Like, let's keep them split. Let's keep them different. Um, so that way people can vote on them. And with that, I think it'll make those government officials more open to be able to follow through. If you just have one thing, you follow through on that one thing, you set it up you know, to be able to succeed, people have something to measure against and then they can hold you accountable. And I think that's, that's the baseline, I think, of what people want when they want to remove the corruption from the system. They don't want extra, extra hands in the cookie jar, extra pots, extra you know, mouths to feed. They want to know, you say you're doing something, this is what you're doing, this is how it's going to affect me, did you deliver on that? I don't, I don't care about the other shareholders, I don't care about anybody else. How does that, how, how did you say that you're going to do what you're supposed to do? That's, that's a really, I, I like that and I think that that's maybe one way to simplify the things that can or should be simplified to allow us to spend the time to think about the more complex pieces. I think another way that we can do that in, uh, in terms of how our politics already work is that, you know, I don't know if, I wonder if we need to have more involvement in our local politics. Uh, I just think about the level of which, the level in which, uh, you know, federal politics or provincial politics or state politics is covered versus local politics and where what a part of the reason that i wonder about that is that i think that there's maybe something to be said for i, I wonder if if increased civic engagement would help you to create that or would help all of us to create that space where politicians have like we we speak a local representative who can then speak to the mayor of our city, who then speaks to the premier of our state or the governor of our, or sorry, the premier of our province or the governor of our state, who then speaks to our president or prime minister respectively, that maybe we've created that because, yeah, I don't think realistically, like in a country of, what's the population of the United States, 300 million? 330 million, I think. Sure, yeah, yeah I don't, there. you can't have, that many people trying to talk to one person and it also doesn't mean like i think part of it is that we have to stop assuming or treating it like this one person's one position is some sort of omnipresent uh leader like that they do everything because it's actually not that done that way it's specifically not designed to be that way like for example you know in canada one of our checks that we have in place is in theory that our governor general uh, has to ensure that any laws pass because we have to bring it to the queen. Whereas in the United States, like the checks and balances that exist there are that you have three levels of government, right? Like you have on federal, that you have your, what is it, the, the Congress? The Judicial, the, legislative, and executive. Yeah, exactly. And that it's this idea then that, but, but we focus so, so intensely on the executive that it can give the impression that anything that's not in the executive doesn't matter. And I wonder if one of the things that, uh, you know, like 
one of the things that I see that I'm really inspired by when it comes to politics is when someone can reinvigorate a space. So I think someone like you look at like what's going on in Congress right now with someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or uh, Ilhan Omar. And these are people that are very polarizing. There are some people who absolutely love, love them and what they're doing. And then there are people who don't. But I think the fact that they're actually being spoken about, that you have young people coming into Congress who are actually making Congress you know, talked about, I think that's great. I think that that's the opportunity to start saying, okay, let's start focusing on all these levels. Let's get more people who are on a civic level as well. Let's talk about, you know, in our own neighborhoods, who are the people that we need to talk to? And perhaps if we start, again, kind of goes back to something that we talked about earlier, but this idea of if we start seeing politics as something that, you know, we should be appreciate. We should appreciate that we get the chance to engage in it, because and and I don't want to say it in like a way of like oh you know like in other countries they don't have that because yeah absolutely every country every person should have the freedom to engage in some sort of political discourse. But I even mean just as the you know this is the opportunity for us like we should have that ability to come together and make decisions that would speak to the you know like the bring the best value to us and not the best value to the most of us because i think once we start doing that most of us is when we again start getting a little closer and closer to creating a system that can be corrupted i think we have to say it's for everyone yeah i think that's that's a huge portion of it because i think that often gets lost because where does that quote unquote most line exist right um and it's going to exist in different places for everybody um, what's what's most? Is that 51% or is that 90% of the people? Is that 99%? What about that other 1% or that other 49? Um, so I think, you know, getting that, like, you, I think you touched on it, the more local involvement there, because I feel like that can send a cascade and almost ripple effect up the chain as well. I mean, like you said, like, the focus so much on the executive branch here in the United States is, is enormous. It's like everything happens there, but people often forget about the Congress, the people want making the laws, the judicial branch, people want enforcing it, and the the chain going up on those particular levels of government too is extremely important. I think in the middle of that, I would I would be remiss to say I do think that there needs to be a little bit of a spotlight turned on the ability of lobbyists to be able to interject their thoughts feelings, sometimes financial capital, um, their network, their resources to be able to shift the mindset of some of those individuals that will be making those decisions. I think that's a huge aspect of it. I don't know how you're going to decouple that. My first inclination is, of course, you might have to take somebody that's radical in the situation that might end up being president or executive or legislative or something like that and find a way to end that lobbyist and say hey no more lobbyists in washington you just you can't do it it's it's going to be whatever i think that's going to be extremely difficult because i feel like some of the people that are that would vote to pass that are probably some of the ones that are also taking <laughs> that stuff so um but i do feel like there's a new era starting to come about in the fact that it seems like the concept of whistleblowing and people 
standing up and saying something is becoming more prevalent and people are quicker to say, that's not right. Put it on social media or, or drop it to a news outlet and all of a sudden there's an investigation. A lot less things are going underneath the rugs. Now, with every bad apple, they will find, they will continue to find ways to be bad apples. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think that's a that's a huge avenue that's still untapped. Yeah, it's the challenge of trying to legislate things can mean that the, those who were using it for their own advantage, you know, if you tell them they can't do it a certain way, are they going to do, are they going to stop out of respect for, you know, what they were doing being wrong now? Or are they just going to find another way to circumvent it? Um, Another way you could maybe think about it is, and like again, it goes back to something I was had suggested before, but empower more people to be lobbyists for their own groups, for their own, um, uh, you know, for their own local areas. So, um, you know, libraries. Libraries is a big one in Toronto. When Rob Ford was our mayor, one of the things that he really went after was libraries and that was something that a lot of people in the city of Toronto got together and made an effort. They went out of their way to try to convince them, don't take away our libraries, our libraries are important. Um, and eventually it started to bring in, you know, people who are a little bit better known. Like I think at one point, George Strombolopoulos, who is this uh, talk show host on, he, he's been on like Canadian radio and CBC till television in the past. He got involved and eventually it became more and more started getting coverage on a national, you know, Toronto's the biggest city in Canada, but it's, you know, at some point you really have to put enough effort in, I think, to make sure that the media starts paying attention to this very niche thing happening in the city of Toronto. And I think that that's an example to me of people can be, you know, people can band together and be a lobbyist. You know, and, and, and unto themselves. It's, you know, I don't, I think, I think the problem or the challenge of going after lobbying is like you said, the first problem is the people who we would want them to make that decision could in theory be themselves corrupted. And the other challenge to that is that I wonder if also every lobbyist fully understands that, you know, what they're doing. Because I think that, again, when you're in a situation where we kind of set these boundaries of like, I belong to this group and you belong to this group and I'm going to look out for my group, am I, could like from that perspective, am I a lobbyist? Do I understand what I'm doing is, could be detrimental to another group at any point? So I think, again, if you allow for more people to have that voice, to give them the opportunity for that voice to be heard, to be more involved in the discourse, I think, again, one of the ways that you do that is that you say, let's get more people involved in their local politics. Let's get people in communities, especially like you talked about redlining for neighborhoods or you know segregation in the past in uh, the United States, but it still happens, it, you know, like, in any city, there's gentrification happening where people may feel like they have no recourse to have their voice heard as they're slowly being priced out of where they live. And for that reason, perhaps one of the things we need, you know, I don't think that we can treat a lack of discourse as 
you know, proof that they don't want to be involved. I wonder how many people aren't involved because they simply just don't know where to start. Where to start, how to get involved, how to go about it, where to go, the right people to talk to. Um, and I, I agree just based on the points that you brought up regarding lobbyists, I have to say that I, that my position has changed and I do stand a little bit corrected because coming into it when I when I thought about that that aspect of it a, a little bit um, I was like yeah that's something that you probably just need to remove and when you touched on it earlier it, it you know came kind of rushing back um, but when you put it like that in a way that the lobbying can be used for positive things to be able to make that change to be able to get people involved and, and hold people accountable and in turn eventually start to get at that corruption or, or create that system without corruption, I think um, is a healthy way of doing it in a positive in a positive aspect. So um, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. I like I like when my mind gets changed. Well I'm um, happy that's, to that's <laughs> I think I've I've had you've mentioned a bunch of things tonight that I've really had not considered um, and again I think that this is why these types of conversations are so important. It's because you can't, like none of us can expect, we, we can't put the onus on ourselves to know everything. That is impossible. I go back to, we all are the dumbest people in the world, but we're also in some ways the smartest people in the world. So we should share that with each other. But I think the way we like, I think we need to have more opportunities to go into situations to say to each other, like, Hey, I know, like, I would like to know more about something from your perspective. So please talk to me about how you understand this. Because um, I'm sure if we were to continue talking about this for the next, you know, few hours, we probably would unearth even more things and change the way that we both thought on things that we hadn't considered before. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's... That's what we're kind of here to do, right? To start that engine so that way people can kind of listen and hopefully have those conversations with others and develop healthier, better habits to be able to have those conversations, which can infect change and, you know, in the future. So to wrap it all up, I want to touch on some points here and, and please um, chime in if, if, you know, I miss one or, or something like that. So to try and decouple um, or create a system uh, of politics without the corruption, a couple of things that we need are potentially having additional positions being voted on, except, you know, outside the higher, highest level. Um, voting, making sure it's, it's mandatory so everybody feels empowered to be able to go out and have their voice heard for sure. Um, address topics, issues with a sense of empathy and not sympathy. Um, so that way people can, you know, put them put themselves in other people's shoes and help to bring about a change by focusing on the positive in that regard. We want to make sure that we look at potentially decoupling some laws so that way people can understand what they're voting for um, and then also know how to how to get involved, making sure there's accountability at the beginning part of le legislation so everybody knows what's being graded during that time in which that law is in place. And that way we have an even system of before and after to be able to compare with. And then also looking at um, 
more involvement at the local level so that way we can start that cascade forward and up and then also making sure that we lobby for our causes um, strongly in that local level. Did I miss anything? No, I think that that's, uh, I think that, oh, let's get it started. <laughs> Great, I'm glad we, we hit all those topics. I really feel like this could have went so many ways, but I'm really happy with how um, everything turned out and the, stu the stuff that we got. I had no idea that we would come up with Let's see, what is it, five or six? So um, I really have to send a, a really big shout out and a lot of love to to Matt here and, and his his thought process and the way that he's come about this and, and come together on the show was really enlightening and um, the historical knowledge and stuff that he brought, I was really uh, was really happy to be a part of. So Matt, thank you for, for your time today and, and sharing your thoughts and opinions. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, for all you listeners out there, we'll definitely um, make sure to reach out to us. If you have any comments on the show, you can hit us on our, our website, which is ideaprov.live, any one of the social handles as well, and that's at ideaprov. And make sure to stay tuned after the break for our invention of the week. For this week's invention of the week, I wanted to share with you something that I found um, just totally by happenstance. And it's this tower that sucks up smog in really smog infested places and turns it into diamonds. So as you can see below from the pictures and for those that are listening, I'll definitely put, a, um, put the link in the description for the episode, but it's a small little solar powered um, kind of tower. And throughout the day, it filters about 30,000 cubic meters of air, improving the air quality in the nearby area by anywhere from 55 to 75%. And then with those contaminants, what they found was about 42% of those contaminants were carbon-based. And what that can do is using heat and pressure kind of the same way that you diamonds are naturally created, it can actually create diamonds in that um, you know, off-site using the, using the contaminants. So I thought this was a really cool invention that could be used from an idea prop perspective in, you know, developing countries, places such as Africa or India that have, you know, kind of rough on, rough on breathing quality and, and air, air pollution. And then also the corresponding diamonds that are made from it can be used to help their economy as well. So not only, of course, you can use it in jewelry, but you can use it in manufacturing, you can use it in industrial to build lasers, you can use it to grind down materials for construction, it has a multitude of purposes. So it can also you know, increase their economic output and establish a little bit better living situations for the people there. So love to hear your thoughts. Add it onto our website at ideaprob.live and uh, love to hear you there. Until next time. Thank you.